Pennsylvania homeowner Jerry Lynn has given new meaning to the phrase false alarm. Jerry was hanging a TV in his living room. So to determine where to poke the hole in the wall for the wire, he lured an alarm clock into the wall from an upstairs air vent. He figured that he'd be able to tell where he needed to punch the hole when the alarm sounded. But the alarm clock fell off the string holding it, and it ended up lost in the wall. Jerry figured, no big deal. The batteries won't last but a few months. He was wrong. For the next 13 years, every evening at 6.50 p.m., that alarm clock goes off. His wife, Sylvia, says, it's not a bother. It's kind of cute. It starts a conversation when guests come over. (laughs) Well, the Thessalonians were also victims of a false alarm. And there was nothing cute about their situation. A spiritual deception had threatened this church's faith. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul had written to this church about the rapture. That Jesus is coming to airlift his church from planet earth before God's coming judgment. But it seems the Thessalonians had received another letter. False teachers had written in Paul's name saying that Jesus had already come and the Christians in Thessaloniki had been left behind. The believers were in a panic. And Paul writes this second letter to them to refute the false alarm, to straighten out the confusion it had caused. Paul hopes to restore hope. Well, he begins in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. I've heard it said, a real friend warms you with his presence, trusts you with his secrets, and remembers you in his prayers. And if that's the case, there has never been a better friend than the Apostle Paul. For in all of his letters, he prays for his readers. Recall in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul prayed for this church. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. Well, here he now thanks God for answering that prayer. For in verse 3 he says, Because your faith grows exceedingly, And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. The believers in Thessalonica had a growing faith and an abounding love. And then he says in verse 4, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now remember, the Thessalonians were wartime babies. They had been born again in the midst of persecution. Acts 17 recounts how the mob in Thessalonica had arrested the leaders of the church and had run Paul out of town. And yet through it all, the Thessalonians had been faithful to the Lord. These believers were overcomers. And over the last 2,000 years, similar persecutions have not subsided. 
Open Doors, a ministry that tracks global hostility toward Christianity, says that today, 360 million Christians live with a high level of opposition. That means worldwide, one in seven Christians are to some degree persecuted. Did you know that this past year, 5,621 believers were martyred for their faith? 2,110 churches were attacked physically. In much of the world today, it is still open season on Christians. Pastor Camille recently exited his church in Turkey and was savagely beaten by Muslims. One of his attackers pulled a butcher knife and threatened to kill him if he didn't recant his faith in Jesus and return to Islam. Camille said afterwards, I am praising God, not because He saved me from death, though He did, but because He helped me not to deny Him in the shadow of death. Now that's some real faith. Despite the attack, Pastor Camille remained triumphant. And this was the same victorious faith that was seen in these Thessalonians. Their lives were marked by the Christian virtues of both faith and love. But what about their hope? You remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul spoke of their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Here their faith and love is still intact, but between the writing of these two letters, something had happened to their hope. Their hope had been stolen from them. You see, sometimes it's not what's said, but it's what is not said that really matters. And this is true here in our text. What happened to their hope? Well, we'll answer that question when we get to chapter 2. But first, Paul continues to comfort this persecuted church, and he does so in a surprising way. He wows them with a description of Jesus' return to planet Earth. It's interesting that Paul encourages a church under attack with a picture of the world's future judgment. Notice in verse 5, Paul refers to the enduring faith of these believers as manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What a heavy statement to make. These believers are manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. See, Paul informs the Thessalonians just a few months old in the Lord now, that at Jesus' climactic return, at the battle of Armageddon, to crush Satan and to annihilate the armies of a rebellious world, God is going to point to the Thessalonians and to some of us and to believers from all the ages. And He is going to say to those hostile armies that have opposed Him, There, I did this to you because of what you did to my children. Nothing angers God more than how the world mistreats His kids. All persecutors and persecution will one day be punished. And Paul ensures the Thessalonians that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. See, the evil world we live in today thinks that it can oppose Christ and trash His church and there'll be no repercussions. Not so. 
At the moment, Jesus has ordered us to turn the other cheek. But in the end, he returns not to turn his cheek, but to bust some chops. He'll repay the world's tribulation on us with God's great tribulation on them. In the end, God will trouble the wicked and, quote, give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. If you're tired this morning, realize that the real rest will begin when Jesus returns. Now, Imagine your son goes out for the baseball team. He's by far one of the better players. But because of little league politics, and you know about little league politics, I hope. Another kid starts in your son's place. An injustice is done. And as a parent, you feel like it's your obligation to talk to the coach. And you plan to do so after the very next game. But in that game, surprisingly, your son gets to play. And he's terrible. I mean, it's his worst game ever. He strikes out at every at-bat. He makes a couple of errors in the field. You said you were going to talk to the coach about your son not starting. And it might still be an injustice. But your son's poor performance has now weakened your argument, hasn't it? What are you going to say now? And this is why the faith of the Thessalonians and our faith is so strategic. Our endurance in the face of persecution is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Thus, we need to live worthy of the kingdom. For if we repay evil with evil, and if we show hatred toward our persecutors and don't respond to them with grace and love, Then one day they'll say to God, why are you judging us when your people were no different? Stoop to their level and we weaken God's argument. At Jesus' second coming, justice will be restored, sin will be repaid, and the righteous will be relieved. When the smoke clears on the battlefield, that final battlefield, and Jesus is the last one standing, a sigh of relief will ascend from the saints. The wickedness of this world will have finally been judged and righteousness rewarded. But if God is going to judge the wicked in the Lord's day, then we need to avoid their same sins in our day. Well, verse 8 tells us that Jesus will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of God. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now why is God going to take vengeance? Because people have sinned? Because of this sin? No, no. There's one reason God is going to take vengeance. It's how people have treated His Son Jesus. Jesus died to forgive all our sins. So the one sin that can't be forgiven is if we reject Him. Every other sin God wants to forgive and has made provision for it. But we need to trust Jesus. Notice how God judges the world in the last days. It all boils down to the gospel. What did you say about Jesus? Did you obey or reject the gospel of Christ? See, people who reject a gospel, notice what it says, shall be punished with everlasting destruction 
from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Notice, here is the essence of hell. It is eternal separation from God. See, you can't live a life defiant of Jesus. You can't live your life on the run from Jesus and then expect to live with Him for all eternity. doesn't make sense. Since you didn't like Him and resisted His influence, eternity is designed to honor your choice forever. If you followed Him, you'll follow Him forever. But everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord comes on those who have disobeyed the gospel of Christ. For when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Jesus is returning to be glorified where He was crucified. He is going to rule from where he was rejected. Even today, Jesus is mocked and ridiculed, and his followers are treated with the same disdain. But on judgment day, Jesus will be admired by this world. Then you and I, the church, will be unveiled as his greatest work, his masterpiece. Irony of all ironies, the world will glorify Jesus in us. Though they persecuted us now, they'll glorify us then, glorify him then in us how the tables will turn. And thus Paul intercedes for these Thessalonians, verse 11. Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a high calling we have been given. That Christ will one day be glorified in us for all the world to see. Now, let's begin to live in light of that high calling. Chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. And this was Paul's subject back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We talked about it last week. There he described an event called the rapture. That one day Jesus will come in the clouds and he'll snatch away his bride. Like a scene from Star Trek, he's going to beam up his church. In the twinkling of an eye. Our earthly bodies will be transformed into eternal bodies. Bods fit for God. How about that? We'll be gathered by our Lord Jesus in the heavens. See, Paul didn't leave the Thessalonians up in the air about the rapture. He carefully explained what was up with this important event. And yet confusion had occurred. False information had been disseminated. And in verse 2, Paul confronts it. He says, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though, a day, as though the day of Christ had come. Day of Christ is a synonym for the day of the Lord or God's final judgment. It's how the New American Standard and the newer translations rendered the phrase, the day of the Lord. So what had happened to the Thessalonians Hope. Well, from Paul's statement here in verse 2, we can infer that someone had told them that they had missed the rapture and that the day of the Lord or God's judgment had begun. 
Now put yourself in Thessalonian shoes. With the fierce persecution they had experienced, it would have been easy for them to conclude that they were experiencing the great tribulation. Remember, today is the day of man. For the most part, mankind is having his say and getting his way. But God is about to spoil man's party. For the day is coming when God will intervene in human affairs and have the concluding say. Daniel 9 speaks of a final seven-year period that will end mankind's rule over planet Earth. God is going to rain down His wrath on this wicked world. He's going to purify His people Israel, and He's going to usher in His kingdom. And that period, yet future, starting after the rapture and culminating with the kingdom of God, is what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. So what scared the Thessalonians was the suggestion that they had missed the opening act, that they were already in the day of the Lord, that the rapture had occurred and they had been tossed into great tribulation. And they had even received a letter, supposedly from Paul, confirming their fears. Paul assures them that it was a forgery. The Thessalonian church had been duped. Several years ago, a man from Clearwater, Florida, was getting a kick out of dialing 911. Fourteen times in three years, he called in a false emergency. Today, the knucklehead is in the slammer where he belongs. But when he was arrested, he told the police that he enjoyed fire trucks and flashing lights. He got his jollies from creating panic. Well, there must have been a similar fellow in the church at Thessalonica. For he enjoyed setting off false alarms. The church was panicked, but they had no reason to be. Recall the two types of tribulation spoken of in Scripture. Jesus promised his church that in this world you will have tribulation. See, there is a tribulation that the world brings upon the church. But the tribulation that comes in the day of the Lord is the wrath of God poured out on this evil world. This is the great tribulation, and from it God will spare his church. See, for Jesus to subject his bride, the church, to the great tribulation, it would be spousal abuse. A husband who beats up his wife is a beast, not a savior. No, whenever God judges, go back to the flood, at Sodom and Gomorrah, at Jericho, Whenever God brings judgment, He always delivers His own before He brings down the axe. He provides an escape prior to the judgment. And the same will occur in the end times. As we're promised in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. The rapture is our great escape. Verse 3 tells us, So let no one deceive you, By any means. For that day, and what day does he mean? Not the rapture, but the day that he's just referred to. The day of the Lord. It's the period when God pours out his fierce judgments. It's preceded by the rapture, but it's much more. And this final period will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Now, follow the logic that Paul uses to clear up this confusion. If events unfold, A, 
then B, then C, and you haven't seen A and B, then you know that C hasn't occurred yet. Thus, before God's day of judgment, there'll be A, the falling away, B, the man of sin will be revealed, and since the Thessalonians had seen neither, they weren't in the sea that comes after the great tribulation. Thus, they hadn't missed the rapture. See, Paul is clear that the next event on their prophetic horizon and ours is Jesus coming for his church. Notice here, Paul mentions two prophetic landmarks. First, the falling away. The Greek word means departure. It's interpreted by most Bible scholars as a departure from the faith. Now, Paul may be predicting an apostasy that plagues Christianity, that in the last days, false doctrine will abound, that believers will no longer rightly divide God's Word. They'll move from the truth of Scripture and create their own designer religions. And sadly, we see this happening today. Modern Christianity is barreling towards this apostasy. In fact, this is the false religion that will catapult the Antichrist to power. Revelation 17 depicts it as a spiritual harlot. And yet there's another possible interpretation of the falling away. Famed Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he points out that the Greek term could also refer to another kind of departure, the departure of the church or the rapture itself. Paul could be saying that the day of the Lord won't begin until the church has been snatched away. People will know that they're not in the great tribulation because the falling away or the rapture comes first. And the second prophetic marker mentioned here, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The final seven years of Daniel 9 begins when a global leader, known in Scripture as the man of sin or the Antichrist, makes a covenant or that is, signs a treaty with the Jews. Now, piecing some passages together, the Antichrist will rise as the leader of a confederacy of ten European nations and expand his power to rule the entire world. At the midpoint of this final seven years, he'll violate his agreement with Israel and he'll desecrate their temple. And Paul's point to the Thessalonians here is that if the Antichrist isn't on the scene currently, then you know that you're not in the Great Tribulation. Thus, you haven't missed the rapture. We're told in chapter 2, verse 4, that the Antichrist opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This man starts out an atheist and a secularist. Except when it comes to himself, for at some point he claims to evolve to the level of a deity and he demands for the world to worship him. Revelation 13 explains how the man of sin garners such influence. We're told that he blackmails the world into worshiping him. That to buy or sell, a person is required to take his number. It's a mark that is received in the right hand or in the forehead. And it's the infamous configuration 666. 
Apparently, this man will use the hardware of electronic exchange. Cashless technology and digital currency will be his tools to extort the world's worship. In order to buy or sell, you'll have to buy into the system, and somehow he'll use this numerical sequence, 666. Now, it's interesting how many people get the creeps when they see the number 666. It just gives you the heebie-jeebies, doesn't it? I don't know what the heebie-jeebies are, but it gives it to you. You know what I mean? I mean, it just gives you the creeps. No kidding. You're not going to believe this. Just this morning, this morning on my way to church, my bill at the Dunkin' Donuts was $6.66. When the guy told me that, I said, what did you say? How much? He said, that'll be $6.66, sir. How bizarre is that? Today, of all days, this happens to me. And I'm not alone when it comes to creeping out over 666. Did you know that in 1979, Ronald and Nancy Reagan moved into a new home in Los Angeles? Their address was 666 St. Cloud Road. Well, being the Reagans, they had a little pool and they had it changed to 668 St. Cloud Road. U.S. Route 666 was once known as the Devil's Highway until officials changed the name to U.S. Route 491. And many new moms, you may not remember this, but I do, went to great extremes to keep from birthing their babies on June the 6th, 2006. Did you know there's actually a term for the fear of the number 666? Hexacoche, hexaconta, hexaphobia. I hope you don't suffer from that. Here's the good news. Christians have nothing to fear about this number. We have nothing to fear about the Antichrist. This is Paul's point in the chapter. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We are looking for Jesus Christ. And it is clear Jesus comes first. Verse 5 He hammers his home. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This was actually old information. They'd been over these truths before. Well, Paul continues. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now he tells us here that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And friends, there is a spirit in our age that is wanting to throw off God-instituted boundaries and laws. The mystery of God lawlessness is here. Today, God created gender differences are outright denied. Biblical roles in marriage are under assault, as is the very definition of marriage. People defy the natural order to do as they selfishly see fit. Self-identity today trumps biological reality. I mean, a real lawlessness is at work. And if you think it's crazy now, 
Just wait until he who restrains is taken away. And who might this restrainer be? I believe it is the Holy Spirit in His church. Not the Holy Spirit per se, for the Spirit will continue to be around after the rapture. But right now, the Spirit of God is in His church. And He is the one providing the primary pushback to the lawlessness in our society. He is what's keeping the devil at bay. But once the church is raptured, and the Spirit in the church is taken out of the way, it'll be Katie bar the door. Today, God's Spirit is in His church. But that's all that's restraining this rising tide of evil in our world. We need to realize it's our love for Jesus, our stand for the truth. That's what's opposing Satan and keeping his confusion in check. But when the true church is gone, the devil will have a heyday. Verse 8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed. Once the restrainer is gone, which means the church has been raptured, Antichrist will be free to take control and push his agenda to center stage. But he's not in power for long. For he is the one whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. With one breath of his mouth. With one glimmer of his glory. He'll destroy the man of sin and the armies who follow him. You've heard of breath that kills? Well, that's Jesus. Here, a case of bad breath from the Lord's own mouth and a glimmer of His glory will vaporize the Antichrist and those that oppose the coming of Jesus. After the British Navy defeated the Spanish Armada, In 1588, Admiral Drake asked Queen Elizabeth if she would honor his troops with her presence. He wanted the queen to pass out medals to his admirals. She agreed, but before the queen arrived, Drake commanded his men, On account of the dazzling loveliness of Her Majesty, all men, upon receiving their prizes, should shield their eyes with their right hand. And thus was born the military salute. That's how it started. And here Paul is telling us the only protection from the searing heat of the glory of Christ in that day will be our salute. If we have surrendered and submitted ourselves to the authority of Jesus, it's our salute that will save us in that day. We can either yield to His glory now or we'll be destroyed by it later. But all of us must surrender and salute the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then Paul adds, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. See, satanic power is real. When Moses turned his rod into a serpent, Pharaoh's magicians duplicated the feet. Of course, when Moses' serpent ate Pharaoh's serpent, it proved that God's power was greater. Yet Satan did have miraculous power. And this Antichrist will be a miracle man. He'll perform wonders, but they'll be lying wonders. God uses miracles to draw men to the truth. Satan uses them to sell his lies. This is why a miracle alone 
doesn't authenticate a person's ministry. Satan can work miracles to draw men toward lying wonders. Verse 10 highlights the purpose of Satan's lies. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. See, the devil's going down, and he wants to take as many people with him as possible. It's sad. Once a person rejects the truth, it's amazing what they'll, they'll fall for. They'll fall for anything. This means people alive in the great tribulation will be vulnerable to satanic deceptions. And then we're told in verse 11, And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now this is not just a lie, this is the lie. Perhaps it is the very first lie. The lie that ended the perfect world that God had created. It ended utopia. You recall Satan convinced Eve that God was holding her back? That he didn't really want her to eat the fruit or she would be like him? You remember the lie? And this is the ultimate lie. And it's been repeated over and over again. And it's being repeated today. That Satan is the good guy and God is the bad guy. That Christianity is evil. That the Bible is just a way to oppress individual freedoms and keep human beings from reaching their full potential. How often do you hear that today? In the last days, God will send on society this strong delusion to consolidate man's rebellion. Verse 12 tells us that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And why do people reject the truth? Well, he says it right here. Because there's pleasure in unrighteousness. Sin is fun. It feels good. It tastes good. It can even look good. If it didn't feel good, it wouldn't be tempting. And yet in the end, God is going to condemn those who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. See, it's not enough just to hear once and believe. We need to stand fast. We need to hold on to the Scriptures, to the things we've been taught. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Paul reminds them not only of God's love but that He's given them good hope by grace. Don't let anyone steal your hope. Chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us. See, Paul had prayed earlier for the Thessalonians. Now he asked them to return the favor. Pray for us. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. I like the Bible's descriptions of the Bible. Have you ever studied this? 
You know, Jeremiah says the word of God is like a hammer. Oh, and sometimes it is. Hebrews tells us that it's like a sharp, two-edged sword. It separates between soul and spirit. The psalmist says, the word of God is sweeter than the honeycomb. And here we're told that God's word has 4.2 speed in the 40-yard dash. It runs swiftly. It spreads quickly. Hey, why don't we pray that the word of God will spread swiftly in our community? Wouldn't that be good? That we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Not everyone has faith. There are wicked people out there. They're faithless men, and they often oppose us. But the Lord is the all-pro left tackle. That's right. If you follow Jesus, He'll have your backside. He'll cover your blind side. He'll guard you. He'll guard you and I from being sacked by the devil. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And there is no greater truth than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But so often we wander from that truth. And God's love becomes distant to us. That's why our prayer needs to be, Lord, direct my heart back into your love. That's what he prays here. Keep bringing me back to your love, Lord. And this is not a prayer Paul would have prayed. If it wasn't a prayer, God was willing and faithful and able to answer. Then he says in verse 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now the people who had caused the confusion in the church needed to be disciplined. And if this wayward believer resists correction, the final remedy is just to exclude him from the fellowship. They can no longer be part of the church if they don't repent. So you wake someone up and you bring them to repentance by removing from them the protection of the church family and letting the rebel taste the consequences of his own error. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Now, Paul was a pastor, and a pastor had the right to be compensated by his church. But for the betterment of the Thessalonians and for the sake of the gospel, Paul willingly forfeited this right. He became bivocational. He worked a secular job. Paul was a tent maker by day and a pastor by night, and as a result, a burden on no one. And that was his intention. Paul worked hard. But he has a word from those who don't. He continues. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. I read about a guy in New York City who enjoys fine food. But he doesn't really like to work. 
31 times, this man has entered an expensive restaurant, eaten fine cuisine, and then shrugged his shoulders upon receiving the check and waited on the police to haul him off to jail. 31 times he's pulled this stunt. The police say he actually looks forward to getting locked up. In jail, he gets three square meals a day and a place to sleep. They estimate that over five years now, New York taxpayers have shelled out $250,000 to feed, clothe, and house this one lazy man. Now, there are legitimate cases where a person is unable to work. And in those rare situations, the church should help. But if you don't want to work, then no one's going to give you a handout, friend. This church is not going to interfere with the lesson that God and your hungry stomach want to teach you. Paul is adamant. No loaves for the loafer. If you don't work, then you don't eat. Now realize what was going on in the church at Thessaloniki. Because of their emphasis on the coming of Christ, some of the believers had decided to just sit out life. Why go to school? Why get a job? Let's just wait on the rapture. Jesus is coming back. And they were mooching off other believers. And Paul says, stop it! Christian charity should never breed a person's irresponsibility. If you don't work, you don't eat. Verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all but are busybodies. You see, without a regular job, folks grow idle. And they start sticking their nose in other people's business. It's often said, idleness is the devil's workshop. The rabbis used to teach, he who doesn't teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. You need a job. You need a means to support yourself. You need an occupation in which you can work hard. The ancient Romans put it, by doing nothing, men learn to do evil. It's good and honest work that keeps food on a person's table and keeps that person out of trouble. Then we're told in verse 12, Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Hey, making a living and doing good to others are the two pursuits that should preoccupy every Christian's life. Make a living and do good to others. And then he says in verse 14, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with them, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And this is a beautiful balance that gets struck here. If a brother persistently disobeys, don't pretend it's cool. Don't be all buddy-buddy with him as if nothing's wrong. And yet at the same time, don't abandon him either. He's your brother in Christ. Sit him down and discuss the issue until the issue gets resolved. That's how you deal with it. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. 
Remember, the Thessalonians had been duped by a false alarm. They had received a letter erroneously attributed to Paul. And here the apostle tells us how to authenticate his letters. He says, check the signature. You see, normally Paul would dictate his letters. Then at the end, he would take the quill in his hand and he would sign it personally. Thus, it was his signature that became his stamp, the stamp of authenticity. And so verse 18 closes the book of 2 Thessalonians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And you have covered a whole book in the Bible on one Sunday morning. <laughs>